A reading this morning is Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified by, before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Father, we come uh, from busy weeks and busy lives and busy seasons. In fact, even as we just announced a lot of things starting up right now, Lord, and we, we feel and we experience that busyness. So we ask you now, Lord, that by your spirit and in your grace and mercy, uh, that you would uh, cause us to stop, uh, to think, and to ponder uh, your word. That you would, in fact, as your word says, show us wondrous things in your word, O Lord. We pray that this morning. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Almost there. It's, it's New Year. My name is Jake. I'm part of the team here. It's good to be uh, with you uh, this morning. I want to begin with a question this morning. The question is this. What is the role uh, of blessings and curses for us today? What is the role of blessings and curses for us today? In, in the text we just uh, heard read, uh, we encountered a, a world that might not be familiar to many of us. It's this world of, of blessings and, and curses. And we don't talk often about both of those things, right? Blessing and, and curses. As far as I know, and I'm not like the most social media you know, savvy here, but as far as I know, hashtag cursed uh, hasn't taken off, or has it? I'm looking for some young people in here. Okay, I don't know. As far as I know, we don't talk about blessings and curses uh, fairly often, right? Uh, in my experience, my experience, uh, our beliefs surrounding blessings and curses typically uh, fall in one of two, two camps. Uh, the first camp is that blessings and curses belong in the world of mythology, right? The, this, is, this is Indiana Jones uh, type stuff, right? This is, you know, a mummy and Tom Cruise and some catastrophe that he saves us from kind of stuff, right? That, that's one camp when it comes to blessings and curses. We're, we're progressive, uh, modern people. You know, what do we need those for? The second camp when it comes to blessings and curses is one that like wholeheartedly embraces them. Like it's not just Indiana Jones type stuff. Like this is my life and everything I do, good or bad, is either blessing, yes, I, I achieved some blessing, or I did a bad thing now and so now, now cursing comes into my life. Or maybe because we're Vancouverites and two options is not enough options. Uh, there's a third option there, right, where we, you know, are progressive, modern, you know, sensible people. But we think that there's some sort of spiritual interference in our lives. Uh, there's some sort of higher power. And, and, and we're navigating blessings and curses, but we're unsure about these, these words, these terms. Let me ask again. What is the role of blessings and curses for us today. As we seek to answer this question, it's important that we remember that the world of the Bible is a world of blessings and curses. Now think back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God creates humanity. God creates us male and female, it says. And in Genesis 1, 28, listen to this language. 
Then God, what? He blessed them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, Adam and Eve, and and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. There's, There's blessing here. And blessing, as we see in Genesis 1.28, is nothing less than than God's divine favor and love towards his creation. Uh, In this text, we see that as he bestows upon them this this kingly ruling and reigning over creation, there's there's blessing here. But it doesn't take long, and if you know the story, you know it doesn't take long uh, for humanity, for us, uh, to rebel against the creator God. And in our rebellion, we see cursing. Cursing. In Genesis 3, uh, we see the results of this rebellion in the cursing of of the serpent, of Eve, and of Adam. Uh, In particular, Eve and Adam. In Genesis 3, 16 to 19, we read this, this, this cursing. And to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. What then is cursing? If blessing is, is God's divine favor towards us, what, what, what then is, is cursing? Well, cursing, and to be cursed, is nothing less than the reality of God in his justice and holiness meeting us, encountering us in our, our sinfulness. That's cursing. And later, as we trace uh, the history of God's people in the Bible, we see Moses give the law, Right? Moses gives the law, and in Deuteronomy 28, he, he kind of spells it out. He says, listen, do these things, be blessed. Right? Don't do these things, be cursed. Right? Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 to 2, begins like this. If you fully obey the Lord your God, and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then he lists a bunch of of blessings. And in verse 15, he continues, though, to say, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I am giving you today what? All these curses will come on you and overtake you. Why do I read all this scripture, right? Why are we reading all this Bible? I want us to see how the Bible's claim is that the world is a world of of blessing and and cursing. The Bible's claim is that we're either standing in God's divine favor, God's blessing, or we're not. And we feel that this morning because is there anything more anxiety-inducing than asking that question, where do I stand with God? The silence, I think, proves that true, right? How many nights have we laid awake in our beds thinking, where do I stand with God? Am I standing in His divine favor, or am I standing in, in cursing? 
Thankfully, thankfully, our text this morning seeks to answer this question, help us understand this question of where do I stand with God? And to help us see this, I want to break it down into three questions. Three questions, really simply. First, who has God cursed? Who has God cursed? Second, how can we move out from under this curse? How can we get out from under this curse? And then thirdly and finally, if we move out from under this curse, if, if that happens, what does that make us now? What does that make us now? Who has God cursed? How can we get out from under the curse? And what does that make us now? So, who has God cursed? Galatians 3.10, uh, we find it there. If you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible, take it, or on your phone, pull it up. Uh, grab a Bible, take it, keep it. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, we trust that you will be blessed uh, by that, uh, the Word of God in your hands. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now I know uh, you all remember where we left off in November, right? So I don't have to summarize, right? You, you remember perfectly. Right? Paul spent the past you know, nine verses in Galatians 3 talking to the idiotic idiots in Galatia, right? You remember that? Brett said that. That was funny, right? He called them idiotic idiots. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And it's a rhetorical question. No, right? We learned in the first nine verses that God's people have always been saved by faith. And it's indeed those who are saved by faith, mind-blowing, who are the true children of Abraham. These are the blessed people. That was verse 9 that Paul said that. And now, here in verse 10, he's drawing a contrast. Right? He's drawing a contrast. People of faith, and now these other people, these, these, these cursed people. And, and who are the cursed? Well, our text is very clear here. Perhaps you saw it. All, all who rely on works of the law, it says, are under a curse. All who remain, all who depend, all who abide in their law-keeping on the basis of which they are made right before God, Paul says they are under a curse. And in support of this point, uh, Paul goes to Deuteronomy 27. Now again, I know you guys all know Deuteronomy 27 off by heart. Uh, and so this is again just a refresher. But it's this interesting kind of freaky chapter in the Bible. There are a few of those, right? Where it's like, huh, this is in the Bible. Okay, Cool. Uh, it's this freaky chapter uh, where, where Moses, going through the law, says, you know, cursed are such and su such people. If you do this, you're, you're cursed. So things like murder, uh, Moses says, you know, cursed, right? Uh, things like incest, Moses says, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're cursed, right? Uh, other things, Moses says, you know, dishonoring your parents, right? Cursed. Kids, did you hear that? Dishonoring your parents, cursed. And, and, and the, <laughs> there's some groans. And, and the last curse in this list of curses, it's sort of like this, this summary curse, if we can say it like that. Deuteronomy 27, uh, 26. This is what Paul is quoting. Cursed. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. 
And so these curses would be read in front of the people of God, and the people of God would, would say in response, Amen. We hear this, we understand, and we seek to, to live by this. Now remember, let's go forward sometime now to the context of the Galatian letter. And remember, there are some false teachers in Galatia who are trying to teach the church there that you need to add to faith in Jesus just a little circumcision, right? Just a little works of the law. Just, just a little Torah obedience. And doesn't Deuteronomy 27 kind of fit nicely with their argument, right? Friends, listen. Don't you want the blessed life that we have in Christ? Don't you want to live in the fullness of Yahweh's plans for us? You know, and, and don't you want that blessing? And further, this cursing business, that's nasty business, right? That's, oof, unpleasant kind of stuff. Doesn't it fit nicely with their argument? Paul's not having it. He's not having it. And he will turn uh, their argument on its head. See where these, these false teachers want to emphasize the blessing of the law, the avoidance of, of cursing as well. Paul wants us to see, the Galatians to see, that the law, and, and hear me here, the law understood as a means on its own to make us right with God, Paul says very clearly in, in no uncertain terms, that's a curse. It's a curse. Where they want to preach the simplicity of, hey, friend, brother, sister, just, just keep the law. Paul wants us to see, in effect, uh, that no one has ever perfectly kept the law. And if no one has ever perfectly kept the law, then the law as a means to make us right before God, friends, what? Is a curse. Is a curse. See, Paul will remind the Galatian church uh, later in this letter, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, who accepts this Jesus plus something, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In fact, Paul has already made this point in this letter. It says this, this is important, right? And you've already heard this point preached to you, Christ City, right? Galatians 2.21, Paul said this, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, if right standing before God were through the law, what? What? What's the implication? Then Christ died for no purpose. Then the cross, useless, meaningless, pointless, um, extravagant theater. The law can't save you. And as we continue to read in Galatians 3, 11 to 12, what we'll find is that the law understood on its own terms, was never meant to save you. That, that was never uh, the purpose of the law. Look at Galatians 3, 11 to 12. And Paul writes, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall Live by them. See, even in the earliest days of the law's existence, the law looked forward, looked ahead, if you will, to a more glorious day when the law would be written, not on stone tablets, but on people's hearts. 
where, where circumcision would not be a matter of the flesh and, and of outward sign, but, but there'd be a circumcision, as we see Paul use later, of the heart. The law has, has always looked ahead to, to this day. And, and Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, right? The righteous shall live by faith to, to show us that. The law has, has always looked ahead to this more glorious, more, more beautiful day where, where circumcision is, is of the heart and not of the flesh. And then in verse 12, in verse 12, look at your Bibles. Paul quotes, he's quoting from Leviticus 18.5. But again, you knew that. Leviticus 18.5. And sometimes it's helpful, just as a matter of reading and understanding our Bibles, it is helpful and, and not blasphemous and safe for you. I want you to bless you in this Christ city, uh, to look at different translations sometimes, right? Like we read from the ESV, we don't have a doctrine of the ESV as a church, right? Uh, there are other good English translations, so let's be clear on that. Uh, and the NLT uh, translates uh, Leviticus, sorry, Genesis, no, Galatians, there we go. Galatians 3 Verse 12, really helpfully for us. And the NLT, the New Living Translation, puts it like this. This way of faith is, is very different from the way of the law, which says it is through obeying the law that a person has life. See, Paul's drawing this contrast, and he keeps on drawing this contrast, that there are two ways to live. The way of faith, the way of trust, which leads to righteousness, and then the way of the law, which promises to lead to life, which promises to lead to righteousness. But guess what, friends? No one has ever perfectly kept. No one has ever perfectly obeyed the law. And so the law is then what to us? It's a curse. It's a curse. We could summarize it like this. The cursed are all those who, in, in pride, refuse to give way to faith and to trust. And in doing so, we'll stand condemned on the last day. You and I, outside of Jesus, outside of Christ, are cursed. And one pastor says it like this. All of us who share a heartbeat share a curse. For we all do not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And we should be clear here. Uh, the, the curse, as Paul is using it in this text, is referring uh, to nothing less than eternity in hell. That's what Paul's talking about here. N nothing less than being cut off from the covenant people of God and all the covenant blessings that come with being part of the covenant people of God. Nothing less than eternal suffering outside the new heavens and, and the new earth. That, that, that's the, the hard word of the curse that Paul is talking about here. But not only is there this big, grand, eternal picture in mind here, but, but you and I know this, the curse and living under the curse, it affects our life today doesn't it? Is it just me? It affects our life today, I think. See, the picture that's being painted here of the law is like a, um, an executioner's blade. And it's dangling uh, precariously from the neck of the person underneath it. Right? It's an anxiety-inducing picture. It's, it's a fear-inducing picture. That's the picture that Paul is painting of the curse of the law. I think Martin Luther, he's this old Christian guy. He describes life under the curse of the law uh, this way. O law, 
You would climb up into the kingdom of my conscience and there reign and condemn me for sin and would take from me the joy of my heart, which I have by faith in Christ and drive me to desperation that I might be without hope. If you're new with us this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, think about this for a second. Now, the word sin might be strange and foreign to you, but how about shame? How about guilt? Your conscience condemns you. You have no joy and you are despairing. And it is a despair, perhaps, that you have medicated by avoidance, clever arguments, entertainment, substance, for far too long. We feel the curse. We experience the curse. And it's not just people who aren't followers of Jesus. Don't you, you follower of Jesus, don't you at times live contrary to your identity in Christ? Don't you forget what the life of faith is? I do. I think perfectionism is a perfect example of this. Uh, the other day, I was watching this show, and, and it was a show on the, uh, the, the remodeling and the reopening of a restaurant. And it's like the world's best restaurant. It's called Eleven Madison Park. It's in New York City. If I ever eat there, I will die and be happy, uh, and it will be glorious, right? But it was the, the, the remodeling and reopening of this restaurant. And there's this duo at the helm of this project, and they're like, to say that they're madmen would be sort of, you know, pejorative and derogatory. They're geniuses. Uh, but it's clear as you watch them go through their, their progress and their, their process of rethinking the dishes and the lighting and, like, the, the cushions, that, like, nothing less than perfect, nothing less than, like, uh, like, this unattainable standard will do. Which, for me and for you and for other people who eat their food and dine there, is a glorious experience, right? But for that line cook who undercooks that meat... He's berated, right? What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you that you would cook this meat in such a way? And what is wrong with you that you would order this fabric for this cushion? What is wrong with you? Hear me. I think excellence is a virtue that makes most sense in the Christian worldview. But we should not confuse excellence and doing things really, really, really well with perfectionism. Because perfectionism takes people and and their identity as image bearers of God and makes them into projects, tools for accomplishing your vision, your goal, your idol. And when this doesn't happen, despair creeps in. Right? When my house doesn't look a certain way, it's not as clean as I envision it to be because I have three young children. Shocker, right? Despair creeps in. It's then that we've crossed over into perfectionism. One of these, if we're honest, it's a socially accepted sin in the church. Right? It's a guy who goes to the, the, the job interview. You know, what's one of your flaws? I work too hard. Right? Classic. If I can continue that quote from Luther for a second, it's in these moments as Christians 
where law creeps into the kingdom of our conscience, that we need to learn to, again, borrow a, a phrase from Luther, to be cunning logicians in applying the truth of the gospel to the law that wants to tell us something very, very, very different. Listen to what Luther says. He speaks to the law now and says this, O law, you have overstepped your bounds. Know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not Savior and Lord of my heart. For I am baptized, and through the gospel am called to receive righteousness and eternal life. And so trouble me not, for I will not allow you so intolerable. And isn't the law, isn't this true? The law is insatiable. More, 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 more. So intolerable, a tyrant and tormentor, to reign in my heart and conscience. For they are the seat and temple of Christ, the Son of God, who is the King of righteousness and peace, and my most sweet Savior and mediator. He shall keep my conscience joyful and quiet in the sound and pure doctrine of the gospel through the knowledge of this passive, this heavenly righteousness. And the question now, for both the Christian who is not living out their true identity in Christ, and for the person who's not following Jesus in this room, is how do we move out from under the law? How does this happen? If I am to drop my works in my effort to move out from under the curse, what am I to pick up instead? Both once and continually. Look at verse 13 with me. If you have your Bibles, pick them up. Look with me. Verse 13 says this. It's abrupt and it's glorious and it's beautiful. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Like I said, the turn in our text is abrupt, right? Verse 12 leaves us at a bit of a cliffhanger, right? There's the way of faith, right? And then there's the way of trusting in, in the law, the way of faith. But faith in what? Trust in, in, in what? Friends, don't mishear me. I am not asking you this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to trust in the general idea of God. I'm not asking you this morning to, to trust you know, and, and take my word for it, that there is a spiritual, uh, immaterial world out there. I'm not asking you to trust in, in, in a force or in some sort of general entity beyond yourself. No, the faith and trust of the Bible is a particular specified faith. It's a specified faith. It is faith, as we see in verse 13, that in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, my sin, your sin, has been paid for. Faith in that. Faith in him. We have, friends, in the crucifixion of Jesus, been brought out from under the executioner's blade. And the way this has happened, the Bible says, is, is remarkable. Unbelievable if we weren't told it. See, where our head and where, where my head rested on the chopping block, Jesus has placed his. The full weight, and I want us to hear this this morning, the full weight. The fullness of eternal hell that was destined to come down 
on us has instead come down on him at the cross. To quote Moses, Jesus is the Passover lamb. And to quote Isaiah, upon Jesus was the chastisement that brought us peace. To quote Jesus himself in the Gospels, I have come to give my life as a ransom to buy you back under the domain and darkness of death. Upon Jesus. When Paul says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Again, he's going back to Deuteronomy. In, in Israelite thought and practice, when, when somebody um, disobeyed one of those commands in, in, in the covenant that God had laid out for them, they, they'd be killed. And they take that body, that body, that person cursed by God, and they would hang them on, on a wooden post outside of the camp. Now, the person wasn't cursed because they were hung on that wooden post. They were cursed because they had broken that covenant law. And the people would see this person. And in this strange twisted way, they would remind themselves of the reality of what it means to keep covenant and and to break covenant, of of what the full weight of, of breaking covenant entails. Friends, hear me this morning. The crucifixion of Jesus should inspire our gladness, our joy, our worship, our our awe. But the crucifixion of Jesus is also meant to teach us, to remind us of the very nature of our sin, of the nature of life under the curse. Every time that we minimize, downplay, skirt over, ignore our sin, we make God's plan to send his son to die on the cross on our behalf, every time we ignore our sin or skirt over our sin, we are functionally saying, God, the cross was this cosmic overreaction. Right? Let me assure you this morning, and maybe you're still in self-denial or, or, or you think really highly of yourself. I know myself, so let me speak for myself. Let me assure you this morning, it is not, And it was not a cosmic overreaction for the Father to send his son Jesus to die on our behalf. It is the only response that saves us from the curse of sin. The only way out from under the curse, from failing to abide by every part of the law is to trust in the one who fully obeyed and and lived by the law. See, cursed people can't save cursed people. Cursed people can't save cursed people. And thankfully, Jesus says about himself, he tells us in John 8, 29, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. Now listen, Jesus says about himself, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I have never said that about myself. You could never say that about yourself. And who else? But the one who has loved God and others perfectly can say what Jesus says in John 4, 34. 
And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, my food is like macaroni and cheese. And, and, and some sort of self-congratulatory action. That's what gets me going. But Jesus says, no. My, my food, my desire, my drive, my whole life has been simply to please the Father. To love God and to love others perfectly. And Jesus does what we cannot do. In view then of Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf, again, I want to circle back to this. Let us put to death among us the socially accepted sins. How can we subtly applaud perfectionism if it makes much of our work and little of Jesus' perfect law-keeping in our place? How can we, you know, under the table, encourage the idol of the workaholic? In your refusal to rest, do you not choose the path of works instead of the path of faith? But again, oh, he works too hard. She works too hard. Who cares? There's worse things out there. How about us who anxiously fill our social media feeds with their latest and with our latest adventures and, and purchases? What do you seek to add to the perfect work of Christ in the approval of man? Jesus, the blessed one, became a curse for me and for you, so that we might be blessed, that we may rest in that blessedness. Our third question, so what does this make us now? And brothers and sisters, here's the gospel this morning. In Jesus, we are the blessed. In Christ, we are the blessed. Look at verse 14 of our passage. It says this. So that in, notice, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus' work in becoming a curse that we might become the blessed was not, contrary to how we might think, for, for every person. Blessing, sorry, Paul says that it is those in Christ Jesus who received the blessing of Abraham, those united to Jesus. This is not the general sort of goodwill blessing of that email, right? Blessings, or like, you know, like blessings as you go. This is not like that general goodwill sort of blessings happening here, right? This is, a, again, a specified blessing. And Paul tells us it's the blessing of, of Abraham. It is the blessing made real to us, sealed in us. How? What is the blessing of Abraham? I think it's fulfilled in the coming of the Holy Spirit. Notice this. It is by the Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in both Jew and Gentile that God fulfills his promise to Abraham that he will be a blessing to the nations. It is a transforming presence in our lives of the Holy Spirit that signifies that you and I are indeed true children of Abraham and thus true children of the Father. It is now by the Holy Spirit that you and I are able to produce what? Fruit of the Spirit and thus walk as true children of Abraham. That's the blessing of Abraham. This seal, this guarantee, this, this transforming presence of the Holy Spirit. 
the world of blessing and cursing, hopefully you've seen, should not be ignored as a relic of the past. And nor should we think that true, eternal, made right with God kind of blessing is somehow attainable by our actions, or that cursing is avoidable by what we say or, or do not do. And I recognize that right now, this makes many of us wildly uncomfortable. This is not the world we inhabit. Nine to five, Monday to Friday, it is much easier to live our lives according to a to-do list. It is much easier to live our lives according to a series of boxes that we can check off, and now I stand right before God. It's much easier for whole churches to function in this way. Feeling as if the alternative to, to checking boxes is sort of some sort of wild liberalism, people, whole churches, we implicitly or explicitly add some element of law to faith in Jesus. Talking to a friend recently, he was serving in the States. And before he went down there, he got a clear message. Wear a long sleeve shirt. Now, I should explain, this friend of mine has tattoos. So whatever you think about tattoos, uh, just, just suspend that for a second. My wife hates them, I love them, both sides of the camps, right? Wear a long sleeve shirt. He had, a, he had a tattoo on his finger as well. And, and so he got down there, and he noticed that this was showing, and so he quickly got a Band-Aid and wrapped his finger uh, with, with this Band-Aid. And to be clear, this friend is not Brett, uh, if you're thinking that. Uh, he's not even in here, so that's fine. It's not Brett. Now, whatever you think about tattoos, just suspend that for a second. You'd agree with me that we're saved by faith in, in Jesus, Right? That these friends of ours, these brothers and sisters of ours in, in the States had elevated this, this one thing to a place of, of you know, faith plus, you know, like a, a clear body, right? Faith plus n n no tattoo. Now, I can tell some of you are uncomfortable here. Does this mean we do whatever we want, right? Of course not. Having been justified by faith, we now, by the Spirit, walk in new spirit life. It's why Paul will conclude his letter to the Galatians with what? Works of the Spirit and works of the flesh. And, and Paul lists this for works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I've always warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Hear me, friends. The opposite of, of not living by the law is not this wild liberalism. No, it's new, spirit-fueled, spirit-empowered, spirit-directed life. This is hardly an endorsement for living however you please. Why then, why then is the blessing Christ gives to us such a hard thing for us to grasp? If your community group is like my community group, we've been spending the past three months trying to work out this interplay of faith and works. Why is it such a hard thing for us to grasp? I think it's for a number of reasons, but one reason is this. There is nothing like the cross of Jesus in all of history. 
There, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You and I have never been loved in the way that Jesus has loved us by, by bearing our curse, my curse, on himself. Right? We live in a world where you go to work, you do your task, and you get paid according to the accomplishing and the doing of your tasks. This world is not the world that you and I inhabit 99% of the time. See, in the cross of Jesus, this knife cuts through the fabric of history. Something new is happening. A new kingdom with a new ethic is breaking into our 9 to 5 workspace, law-based righteousness. And it's so strange and foreign and, and, and hard for us because that's not the world we live in. Like hostages who grow closer with their captors, when we choose the law over the good news that Jesus has become a curse for us, we show signs of spiritual Stockholm Syndrome. And one commentator said it really well when he wrote this. Wide open spaces are scary for people who ultimately trust in walls. As the Lord leads and guides uh, us as a community, but us as a leadership team as well, 2019, we feel, is a year of stepping out from under the shadow of the law and into the light of faith and freedom in Christ Jesus. And that is a scary place. It's a place where you've got to remind yourself that at the end of each day, the Father is smiling on you and is pleased with you despite your tremendous successes and despite your tremendous blunders at work that day. That is a scary place. Where straightforward and simple law keeping and abiding and remaining give way to opening up our entire life by examination of the Holy Spirit. I would rather that Jesus looked at the stuff that I was presenting to him. Right? Don't, don't go in that room, Jesus. This stuff over here, really, I mean, come on. I've read the Bible how many times now, Jesus, right? And do you see the way I invited my neighbor over? Come on, Jesus, come on. That's a nice picture. Life in the Spirit opens up our entire lives to examination. Our entire lives to, to radical transformation. It's a scary place. Where the grip on our 5, 10, 15-year plans is, is loosened. And you find yourself praying things like, Oh Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And while this might be a scary place, make no mistake about it. It is only those who stand, or rather who find themselves standing by faith in the curse-bearing work of Jesus Christ, who on the last day will find themselves standing at all. And that's clear in our text this morning. Would you stand with me as we respond now?